Welcome to Lemmy Works, brought to you by Leadership Education Mentoring Institute. We are inspiring parents, mentors, and communities as they embark on the journey of transformational project-based education. Hi, this is Tatiana Fallon. Hi, this is Heidi Christensen. We're so excited to be your hosts. Today, I really want to talk about something that I feel like everyone's talking about, that it's an election year and that it sucks to be alive in America right now. <laughs> I know that's kind of like really, really gloom, but I would say majority of people that I talk to just, they're not optimistic. There's no optimism in Yes, it's awesome to be an American. It's awesome to be alive. There's so much to be hopeful. I don't know. There's very, very few people that are of that perspective. So I want to talk a little bit about crisis. And what everyone's talking about is how horrible everything is right now, which I think defines, you know, we're in a crisis. That's what we are facing. What are your thoughts on that? I, I totally agree. My kids were home recently and we went out to watch a movie in the theater and all of the movie previews were absolutely horrible. And I'm like, oh my gosh, doom and gloom, civil war, you know, fighting, uh, fighting in the streets. I, I'm like, why are we publishing this? It's giving everybody the wrong idea. But yeah, it's, it's pervasive and it's, yeah, it can be really scary. Yeah. Actually, I think my first experience with like this just gloom and doom world is ending. Oh my gosh like, what are we going to do about it? Uh, when I was a young mother and I was playing at the park with my little kids and my mother-in-law had come to visit us. We at the time had chosen to go to college, like all the way across the country. So we didn't have any family, but they came to visit us. And she was telling me about all the stuff that she was reading in this, whatever alternative news source she was using or whatever, about how the government was trying to like steal all of our identities and then like put us under this horrible state. And it's just going on and on and on. And I was just like, I flat out told her and I said, listen, I have two babies. If I were to live my life full of the anxiety that you have, how could I hope for anything for them in the future? I cannot live that way. I have to hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And I'm going to work so hard to make it so because I have two babies. They need this world to be a safe, good place. And so I've got to work toward it. I don't have the emotional energy to worry that the world is ending because my world right now is so busy. I need to hope that the world is going to going to get through this and that my children and I have the skills to endure whatever comes our way and we're going to be okay. So in one of my favorite projects, I'm probably biased, but in Key of Liberty, we do document studies and we study lots of original documents from the American founding. And one of my favorite documents that we study is the American Crisis Paper. And obviously I wrote the project, so I have read that a lot of times. I remember the first time I wrote it. I was the reason I read it. The first time I read it was because in Quest, do they let you pick someone for character traits, or did they? Yeah, in part of Quest. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I I think I had picked Thomas Paine for courage. I think that's what I had picked, and so I started reading all of his original works, and so I was what what, what was I? I guess 16, 15, 16. And I remember reading the American Crisis Paper the first time. I have like a very vivid memory of it. I'm thinking, 
what? This is the best written essay I've ever read. I wish I had my notes. I'm, I'm sure I don't, but I had like notes all over the paper. And I remember talking about it with my mom and dad. Like, have you read this? This is so, this is like golden. It was so, yeah. <clears throat> but then as I've had children, I've had the opportunity to read it again. I've read it almost every year for a lot of years. <laughs> but I wanted to read that with our listeners today and kind of pull some really powerful truths out of it and almost maybe do like a mini document study with just you and I, Heidi, one to illustrate how to do a document study and to pull out the truths that he really nails about crisis and how to get through crisis. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with Thomas Paine, I'll just give a little bit of a background history. He was kind of just this rogue. I don't know if we look back on him fondly, like if you were to know him now, because he just was a rogue person, a rogue individual. You know, he saw what was happening in America and he's like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> I want to leave everything I have in England and just go live where there's people fighting for freedom and justice and equality. And that's what I want to do. Because then he did the same thing. He left America and went to France and, and tried to do the same thing in France. So he's kind of just this intense freedom lover, really rogue guy, does what he was passionate about. So he came to America when the Stamp Acts were happening. And it wasn't really even like a native born American, you know, like a lot of the founders were. And he just started noticing the people and what was happening and the situation with England and how unfair it was. And so he wrote a, a pamphlet called Common Sense, which just went like hotcakes all over the place. It was so viral. It, it was, I guess you would say it would be like a viral video. <laughs> he had a viral pamphlet <laughs> and it was read by everybody. And a lot of the founders actually attributed their ability to push for independence in 1776 because he wrote that in 1775 and it really pushed people over there. But after he wrote that, he was like, you know what, if I'm going to say that we need to be independent, I'd better back that up by my actions. So then he decided to join Washington's army and he joined Washington's army and he wrote this essay or yeah, it's an essay. Uh, he wrote this essay while he was in Washington's army and then Washington, it was published and Washington read it to his troops in the middle of the winter, it was right before they crossed the Delaware on Christmas Eve and for the Battle of Trenton. So it's a really powerful story that this, this essay has behind it. So let's, I'm going to go ahead and read the first paragraph. <clears throat> so he called it American Crisis Paper Number One, which I thought was a very interesting title. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered and yet we have the consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It's dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its good, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. So why did he call this American crisis? What's a crisis? You hear the word all over the place, but what really is a crisis? <clears throat> what are your thoughts? Oh, geez, a crisis is a time i think it's more more people actually feel it i mean you can have a personal crisis it could be something like that but i think he's trying to say that it's a 
nationwide or at that point continent-wide i don't know they were only doing it like in the they only knew the east coast really they hadn't gone in more but it was like these all of these colonies this group of people were in crisis because of these different things that were going through them but these different things that were happening to them how written was treating them i love this quote i read it all the time too because i am a trainer for keep liberty as well and it is something that when I actually am a mentor for Key of Liberty, I love how going deep with the kids on this, you know, like just talking about, you know, tyranny like hell, you know, and it's like, oh, what is tyranny? And and it's like, okay, so is tyranny the crisis or is it is it the fact that we have those summer soldiers and sunshine patriots is that the crisis and oh wow uh, yeah bringing out all the different aspects that he brings up in that like one paragraph <laughs> it's crazy it's like one paragraph and it's like so deep in all the things he points out yeah yeah, yeah. well so if we look at the definition which is what we always recommend people to do when they're doing document studies and we go to the 1828 dictionary because that was the most accurate to the time frame that America, that he would have been writing i mean we could get paul johnson's dictionary but that's like 100 years later so this is like the closest one earlier the crisis is is a latin means to separate to determine to decide oh so it doesn't even mean bad things it actually means it's the time to decide. It's decide, to decide, to separate, to decide. And it actually only gives two definitions. The first is a medical definition. So it says in medical science, the change of a disease, which indicates its event, that change, which indicates recovery or death. It's sometimes used to designate the excretion of something noxious from the body or of the nauseous fluids in a fever. So the crisis was at the point of a disease when either your body has kicked it and you're going to get better or your body is literally going to die. <laughs> and then the second definition, which is interesting, he says the decisive state of things or the point of time when affair has arrived to its height and must soon terminate or suffer material change. So it's it's that decisive state of things. And, and it's the, it's, so it's not just like to determine or to decide. It's like there's. There's no other time. You have to decide now. Like you have to decide now. It's a decisive state of things. You have to make that choice now. And it's and it's when something has gotten to its pinnacle and it's either going to die off or completely change. So when I read this first definition, like crisis, whenever you hear crisis, like, oh, the financial crisis of 08 or, oh, the the housing crisis, like the, the first thing you think of is like, oh my gosh, world is ending. How am I going to function, right? You don't really think of, oh, the time in which we got to the point where we really need to change or or we're going to die. That's really what a crisis is. Like it's, and it's so liberating to me. Like when I was a young mother and I was trying to, you know, I still am a young mother, but when I was just had my babies, that was really hard for me because there's always people out there and it, I think there always will be who are like doom and gloom. And it was, it was so liberating to me when I had done this in training. And I realized like, no, crisis isn't this gloom and doom. Crisis is this opportunity for this amazing opportunity for us to choose to change. And we get to choose to change. 
Yeah, that definition totally changes how you can look at a crisis, which most people are just like, they're just looking at it from today's definition. And you're so right. We have to look at what the definition is or was back then, because there are so many words, even more common words that have changed definitions over time. I mean, I know, I mean, if you start talking to a teenager, I mean, something is sick. Okay. And that actually means something good to me. If something's sick, my immediate think, oh, what's wrong with it? You know, but no, that's a totally different definition. And so you, that's just an example of like today's lingo. And I don't even know if that's up to date. I might be totally (laughs) out of date on that one, but yeah, yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing that has also helped me a lot when people talk about, oh, America's in the worst place it's ever been, and there's not a lot of hope, and there's a lot of animosity. That's one of the things that's like my team versus your team, whatever political team you end up, or whatever faith you end up, you know, there's a lot of that fighting back and forth on my side, your side. It's the fourth turning book that is so, for me, very liberating especially the new one that just came out, we're probably going to try to have a discussion about it. But it's so liberating for me to know we've been here before and it's okay. We'll, we'll get through it again. <laughs> you know, it's like we get through it every single time. So this is going to be a little bit of a Tati tangent, but it's a funny one. So maybe it's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love our Tati tangents. <laughs> We have a lot of car trips we have to take because a Commonwealth is a little a bit way further from our house. It's like a 45 minute drive. So we I always get books on tape for the kids. And my nephew suggested that we read the series, How to Train Your Dragon. And I don't know if you've read, the book is nothing like the movies. The movies are stupid compared to the book. So it took me a while to get my kids into it because the, it's, it's definitely more of like a focus towards boys kind of book. But they've gotten into it and they're really liking it. So we're near the end of the series. And there's this moment where the hero who's Hiccup and the whole story is just talking about how he's ordinary and he's weak and he's struggles and he's always getting into trouble. And he's always like just struggling and never really, you know, looking like this glamorous, valorous Viking. And there's this one point where this dragon is talking to him and he says, no humans can never live with dragons because humans can never change and i was listening to this uh, part of the story and he said no you have to hope that change can happen you have to hope that we can yes we're always going to make mistakes humans are always going to do the wrong thing but you have to hope that eventually after we do the wrong thing over and over again we're going to do the right thing and we're going to get better and we're going to be a better place than we were. And too often, I feel like the, the mindset that as so many people have is, oh, well, world's ending and it's horrible and they throw their arms up and they quit and they just quit. And then yeah. whatever they think comes true because everybody just gave up and let the people who have an agenda win. Yeah, but if you look at your kids, you know, when you're one-year-old, falls down when it's trying to walk do you just give up do you just like oh no they fell down they're never going to walk I mean I I have to admit during potty training I mean all five of my boys I thought for sure 
they would leave the house, go to college in diapers. I was like, this is never happening. So I, I totally admit to that. That was just, that was a hard, <laughs> hard for some reason for us, but we don't want to do that to our kids. And, and that's not the mindset we have of our kids. We see that people grow. We see that our kids go through these phases and learn and, and grow. So why can't we accept that also for ourselves? And then for us, not just for ourselves, but also as a nation, as a being, you know, as beings, as humans, why can't we accept this? I've read books on neuroplasticity and how it's proven we can change no matter what the age. It's not like you can only learn a foreign language at certain ages, you know, people will try and sell you that. No, it might be a little bit harder as you age, but you can still do it. You just have to be willing to. One of my favorite TED Talks, and actually she has a really good book as well, is Carol Dweck's The Power of Yet. And I think this really applies to this idea of being in a crisis and how it's just a, a moment to decide if we're going to allow change to happen. Carol Dweck's book is uh, is actually titled Mindset, and she was the one that coined the terms fixed mi uh, mindset and growth mindset. Great book. I highly recommend it. But with a fixed mindset, you're like, this is how I am. I can't change. And with a growth mindset, you're allowing for that change. You're allowing that, well, this is where I am now. I just don't know what I need to yet. I haven't reached that growth yet, but I fully expect it. And I really feel like that's one of the things we need to kind of become more aware of and, and incorporate into our thoughts and teach our kids really, you know, that idea of a growth mindset. I really tell people, you know, that should be your first lesson. If you don't have that growth mindset, if you don't teach that to your kids, how do they learn anything? But in a crisis, we need it as well. Uh, my dad read that book when we were kids and, oh, yep, we got that all the time. You're how are you rigid thinking? Or are you going to have your growth mindset? Are you going to have a fixed mindset? How are you going to treat the situation? <laughs> I think Good man. Her, yep. I'm pretty sure her book came out when I was I a was teenager because we got a lot of that. <laughs> So while you're talking, though, one of the epiphanies that I had is that maybe crises can be excruciatingly painful when we don't allow them to, I guess not make us change, when we're presented with the decision to change, and then we fight that change, and we're like, no, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to change. Maybe that's when the crisis has to become so painful that it we die, <laughs> you know, like, and not literally, but like, you know you know, that whatever was existing, the old way of things has to die off. I'm sure there were so many Americans at the time who were absolutely appalled by the revolution and were so upset by the fact that they were losing the king and the stability of England. And, and so they fought that and they fought that right for a while. So, you know, maybe crisis becomes way more painful when we're just like run away from that change. And so maybe what we need to do is like, oh my gosh, the world feels like gloom and doom. It's really hard. Oh, we're present, being presented with an opportunity to change. Let's see, what's the, what are we going to change it? How are we going to change it? What's going to go on? Maybe the, it's a great time for us when we hit with those to change. You know, recently my husband was was laid off from 
his work. It was almost a year ago today. And while it was so scary, just because, I mean, we're one income family and that's reality. I was so grateful for the crisis that happened in our home. My kids stepped up to help relieve burdens. Family members stepped up and literally all of our needs were taken care of in in just an absolute miraculous way. And we grew so, so much better and stronger. And now he's in a career that he really, I think is his calling in life. So, you know, it looked like the worst possible thing that could happen, right? And for a while, it felt like that. <laughs> felt like that for a long time until we took the opportunity to pivot, to change, to open those doors and to to really like get direction and, and not see it as like a failure as much as like, no, this is an opportunity for us to change. What do we need to do differently to really be successful? I think though, the scary part though, is like, personal crises are way different than national crises, right? Because let's just be frankly honest, how many people in the crisis of 08 had a choice about the financial markets crashing? I mean, you didn't have a say what happened. There was, there's literally no, like so many things happened to people completely outside of their power. And that I think is the thing that is so nerve wracking for, for people is that national crises you don't really have a say into how those things play out. You have to just endure. Yeah, no, I know my home one day was, you know, valued at one price. And then it seemed like the next week that value was cut in half. I mean, with that crisis, it was insane. And there's nothing that I could do about it. There's absolutely nothing I could do about it. And, but that was a really scary time. I remember that. But yet I also, because of what I knew, I, and I had educated myself about finance and I I was trying to apply these principles, we got through it and yeah, but it was scary. I remember very vividly how scary it was. Yeah. So while you're talking, like a couple of companies came to me, it's like, you can't really prep for a crisis (laughs) in a crisis. I mean- you're going to have to do with whatever you got, right? I mean, you can't just like fully do things differently, but you can prep for a crisis before the crisis by just living true principles. You know, I look back at my parents and I was older when the crisis hit, you know, about to leave the home and I was pretty much out of the house. Yeah. But there was so much stability in my household because 10 years earlier, my parents had found Dave Ramsey in financial peace and got out of all their debt, but it changed how they did things and they changed how they educated us. We had extensive training on, maybe it's because my dad's a banker, but (laughs) we had extensive training on household budgets and finances and management. And from when we were little, you know, it was really hard graduating from college at that time when there was like still uneasiness. My parents really were able to kind of almost breeze through that crisis without much of an effect on them, I think, because they had found these true principles and strive really hard to live them long before it was necessary, right? So I think there's are, there are things you can be doing now, knowing that crisis is just part of life, to you know find those true principles and try to live those true principles as best you can. But I also think that I had other friends whose families didn't fare well and no, no fault of their parenting their parents doing everything they could. If they were in the building industry, it just didn't matter. It was interesting to watch a lot of my friends whose parents were in that situation, see how the pressure changed for them for the better. 
or change them for the worst, right? And so it's like still within the, the national crisis, you still have choice. You still have choice how you're gonna how you're gonna get through that crisis. So in your opinion, knowing that the cycles of history are real, and that we are in the crisis, it, so I guess for our readers who aren't familiar with the foretelling, we should just do a brief overview of it. Get the book; it's great. You don't necessarily have to read all. 600 pages it's a big book <laughs> but there is a website that I will link that kind of gives an overview yeah of, of that's it a great so idea. yeah the new fourth turning book the fourth turning is here by Neil Howe is I don't know what do you think should they read the original one or the new one I think you could get away with just reading the new one because he kind of takes the principles and just reteaches them with the new one yeah yeah I mean the good the old one has some a few other things, but for the most part, I think you could just read the new one. But basically, he says that history is cyclical, and he makes a claim that history is cyclical, and we've thought that way for a long time. Um, he actually quotes a lot of famous historians like Toynbee, and who wrote The Rise and Fall of Rome, and of the Roman Empire. Or that was Gibbons, sorry. Toynbee wrote a different one. Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire is Gibbons. But he, he quotes all these his famous historians and talks about how many historians believe that the history is cyclical. Not everybody, and there's a debate, we can debate that. And he's observed that in the Anglo-Saxon history pattern, that there are four cycles that we go through. The first being the awakening, and then, is, is awakening is the first, right? Or does it start with crisis? No, it starts with awakening. Yeah, okay. That's it starts with awakening, and then it goes to the... Uh, I just lost it. The awakening, the not the founding, because that's oh. that's the part of the awakening. That the fat okay. The high. Okay, there we go. It goes to starts with the founding or the awakening. Then it goes to the high. You could think of like the 1960s would be the high. You know, life was good and communities were strong and everything was going well. The 1960s and 70s. And then it goes to the unraveling and kind of like this rough age of, of living like the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Um, and then the last one is the crisis period. And that each one of these periods lasts between like 20, it's a generation, about 20, 30 years, give and take. And yeah, uh, the, full, the full cycle is usually the average 100. person's lifespan. Yeah, yeah. 80 to 100 years. Yeah. Yeah. So basically what he's saying is that the fourth turning is here, which is the crisis turning, and that we've reached the point where we've gone through the unraveling and now we're, we're in the crisis. And crisis usually has, it's so fascinating because crisis, he's like, crisis has pandemic, financial, and then global conflict, or not global conflict, but like some kind of military conflict. It's like, well, we already had the financial crash and then we had the pandemic. So what's coming next? <laughs> but <clears throat> anyway, so that's that's the basic idea. But then he adds something new to it, which is very interesting. He says that there's generational archetypes within each crisis that lead or are born in that crisis and they have a huge impact in the crisis. So it's called, he calls them, there's the hero generation, which is comes to age in the crisis, and then the nomad generation, which comes to leadership in the crisis. You know, if you think about like Revolutionary War history, your Thomas Jefferson would have been your hero, James Madison, 
your Washington would have been your nomad. And then your Benjamin Franklin would have been what's called a profit generation. And then your, your the next one is the artist generation who's born usually during the crisis um, and then comes to age during the high or the awakening. And so he goes into archetypes about all the different types of generations and what it is. And it's, it's a really fun book to read and think about. But, but based it off of the, the fourth turning is here. And we know we're in a crisis. What does homeschooling look like in a crisis? Because, because, yeah, I was, I was in the car with my sister today. She's, she's in the, the trenches, just like I am. And she's like, I just don't know if I can do this. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally, yes. I think that almost every morning. <laughs> she's like, why is this so hard? And I told her, I said, you're not raising your kids in the high. You're raising your children. You're having children and raising children in the crisis. So yeah, it's hard. It's really, really hard. Everyone's like, oh, millennials are just pansies and they're weak. And, and that's why they're not having kids and stuff like that. But it's like, I look at my parents when they were trying to get a home, buy a home and build a career. And I'm like, this is not even comparable. You know, my dad's ratio to the cost of his house, like his income ratio to the cost of their first house was like 50 50%, you know, so he was hit. The first house was like 50,000. He made $30,000. So totally reasonable. Like if I were to do that now, I'd have to make $200,000. And in, in order to like have that same ratio of my debt to house income. Right. And I don't know anybody who's living on one income, making 200 grand. That's not like a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, a business person. And Definitely not what we're doing, right? So it's like it, the, the realistic, it, it's just not the same, right? That is com That comes to effect because the crisis, we're here. We've made really poor financial decisions as a country. And now we're here. We're here. And so my generation gets to live through that and we get to figure it out. And so I tried to like explain that to my sister. I'm like, you're raising your kids in a crisis. There's so many other things happening. There's a mental health crisis, which is wrecking havoc on my generation. There's you know, the financial situation, not fun. There's so few supports for mothers who are staying home with their children. There's no community because how do you support a home with just one income? So there's so many homes that don't have, you know, a place to support communities. And so I was talking to her about that. I'm like, listen, you're raising your children in a crisis and it's okay. We're interrupting this broadcast to invite you to ask questions or share your epiphanies in the comment section. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a good review on the platform you are using because that really helps others find our content. Well, I mean, one of the things you, you mentioned communities many times, and I feel like that's one thing that we really need to we really need as homeschool parents. I mean, I tell, I tell parents all the time at, at homeschool conferences, when they call for individual coaching, just, or just talking to them on the street, it's like, okay, you think that you're going to be joining a community for your kids. It's actually for you, especially if your kids are little, you are the one that needs a, a community, your little kids, they are just fine riding on the 
driveway with chalk and or even I lived in Arizona and I would just give my kids paint brushes cheap paint brushes and a thing of water and let them write on the sidewalk with the water I mean you just really don't even need to buy the chalk they could do it with their fingers even you just really don't need much okay when they're little but you as a mom you as an adult woman need someone there I mean I know when my kids weren't being potty trained easily, it was so much easier to just be able to commiserate with someone and, you know, to get ideas like, you know, I have five little boys. Somebody said, yeah, throw a few Cheerios into the toilet and have them aim at that, you know, so they aren't just getting it all over the place, you know, things like that. I, I hadn't thought of that. And so I'm like, okay, oh, that's a good idea. I, yeah, that that might work. So I, I think that having a community, especially during a crisis, is really important. But I also think that it's important that we understand, you know, those cycles of history and know that even though we are raising, you know, our kids are going through this crisis and that is going to shape them, but we need to prepare them for that future. And if we understand that this is just our choices, we can make the choices of how we deal with it. This is just a change that is happening in our world today. Um, we need to help our kids have a vision for the future as well. If we get so, you know, oh no, what's going to happen, then we rub off on our kids. And John Adams had a quote. It's that just, I love thinking about it in this type of situation. It's, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. And then he goes on saying that basically they need to study that in order to give their children the right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, etc. So it's like he was saying, you know, he was giving the, the the turnings right there that, you know, he needed to do this so his kids would be free and then their kids would be able to be free to do other things. And as parents, if we know that, I just think it's a whole lot easier. I love that you bring in the idea of community and getting you through the crisis. I mean, we talked about that, you know, a little bit more in the podcast a couple episodes ago. Um I also think like community does so much more than just like get you through the crisis. It, 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 it improves your life like so much. I mean, like simple things like, you know, the Cheerio thing, like my friend recommended that we, my son wasn't going to sleep and I didn't want to give him melatonin because I've heard bad things about it. She's, she's like, buy some magnesium spray and put it on his legs every night and he calms down and falls asleep. And it's just been a game changer for his attitude. Right. But like, I wouldn't have got that if I hadn't a, a community of fellow homeschoolers who are you know so wise in so many things I'm not and that's one thing I love about the you know the podcast idea of like a a thousand ways to be smart is that I have weaknesses and I'm not going to be good at certain things but if I have a community then I can be humble and ask for help in areas I am so lost in you know I'm teaching a robotics class which I know like nothing about but I have an amazing resource in our community he's totally loves Arduinos and everything. And I was like, I had a total meltdown on Wednesday. So I was like, I can't teach this class. I don't know what I'm talking about. I show up the next day at Commonwealth and I'm 
he's sitting there right there. And I'm like, can you help me with this? Like, oh yeah, I'd love to help you. So it's like, you know, just being able to have a community that you can reach out to and to learn from and to grow from is, is so priceless. You literally cannot hide homeschool in a bubble. And it makes me so sad when I see homeschool parents be like, oh, we tried a co-op and it didn't work. So co-ops don't work. and We're just going to isolate oh. here. And I'm like, it's like, no, you're going to burn out. <laughs> you're going to be miserable and you're gonna, your relationship with your children is really going to suffer. Yeah. No, I see a lot of people who are saying, okay, well, I'm going to do the community right now because the classes work for my kids. But, you know, next year we might have to do something else because I'm not sure if the classes are going to completely work. And I know I've had to, as a community leader, I've had to decide on, you know, what's best for the community. And it's not always best for my kids, but I know that I have to stay in that community because the community what they're what my kids are learning it's not just what's in the classes it's especially in a time of crisis we need to have that support we need to have those other people around us I know in my community there were several t families that had really serious crises I mean one of uh one of the moms had a brain tumor and we all rallied around. I mean, we filled their freezer with food so that the family didn't have to think about that. We made sure that those kids were at everything, you know, we could get them to so that the parents didn't have to worry about that. We had another instance where uh, one of the dads basically had a huge pay cut and we, it was right before Christmas. And so we, did a, a 12 days of Christmas for their family and, and, but we kept it all secret. And, and years later, the, one of the girls told me that that was her favorite Christmas. I mean, she had no clue that I was part of it, but she just was in a conversation. She told me that that was her favorite Christmas. And, but that's all community stuff. You know, we're, we're banding together. It's not just a co-op where people are coming together and offering classes the community is worth more than that, especially in a, a crisis. Yeah, I really love that you made that point because there were times, I know there were times growing up where the community just was so rough for my mom. <laughs> yeah. Right through the coals and it was really hard on her. She was pretty good at keeping that away from me, so I didn't really know. <laughs> but I am so grateful to my mother that I had friends from when I was 12 and my friends' parents until I went to college. I had friends who I went to Europe with who were my friends since I was 12. Like literally we, we did everything together and, and now we, we're not super close anymore because we've moved all over the country. But like, I know that at a drop of a hat, if I was in a real bind, I could call any of them and they would be there for me. I know they would, you know? Um, and I, when I have had the opportunity to live close to them, we have still a strong friendship and a bond and, and, and showed up for each other. And I don't think that would have been able to be the case if it wasn't about the community and just loving people unconditionally. And that's another thing that I think when you choose to join a, a Commonwealth community really gets like just ingrained into you, a good one, is you just love people, no matter what's, their, what's wrong with them. Like people will ask me, you know, why are you so loving to all the odd kids <laughs> and even the weird adults, right? 
And I think it really comes down to growing up in a community where you got to work it out. You have to work this out. You have to love that weird kid because they're not going anywhere. And there's not a million people in your school. You can ignore them. So figure out how you're going to love them. Work through it. And it's so sad to me because I feel like this generation especially is just quits. We just quit. When things get hard, they just quit. And like, oh, it's too hard to like work out our differences and our community members. And there's 10 other options we can pick. So we're just bailing. I mean, I understand if you're going to bail because fundamentally philosophy you don't agree with. I mean, that's a different reason. But if it's like personalities, I mean, work that through. Like what better opportunity do you have to help your children figure out how to be a statesman or a stateswoman? Let's work on this relationships. Let's figure this out. This person's bugging you. Let's fight through it and figure out why and learn to communicate, learn to forgive. Yeah. And when you think about it, I mean, that's really what we have to teach our kids because you look out at the news today at anything out there and, and you're like, oh, the reds and the blues and, you know, all of these, there is no middle. There's no middle ground. Nobody's talking, it seems like. And our kids and your kids and you, you're going to be part of that too, because you're young enough. But I mean, that's who is going to have to fix this stuff. I mean, really, they have to be able to make the choices in the future to help us get us on the right direction and, and stuff. So what are we going to do? How can we homeschool them so that they are able to make those choices and bring us back together? Because I know there's a way. <laughs> I, I have that growth mindset. I'm not going to say there isn't a way, but I'll tell you, sometimes I, I look I'm at this just, stuff and I'm just... <laughs> I, I'm just going to throw it out there. Like, I think that if you are a homeschooling parent and you want your children to get through this crisis, then you need to model to them. You need to model to them what's going to get them through this crisis. And I think one of the biggest things you can model to them is how you treat the relationships in your life that matter to you. So it's like, it's a commonwealth. Things happen. We recently had a big thing happen and it was, it was hard, right? And I, I fought so hard, my desire to just like whine and complain and throw a fit and be upset so that my children could see that through this whole thing, I was going to show grace, understanding and love no matter what, no matter how upset I was. Because I know that when my mom went through all that, that's what she modeled to me. She modeled to me that people matter over what they say or do. Because sometimes what they say or do is painful or hard. And I think what we're being taught as a generation is like, oh, if, if you violate my feelings, then you're an unsafe person and therefore I can't have a relationship with you. And that's like, no, if you hurt my feelings, you're a human and, and, and thank you for being human because I'm also gonna hurt your feelings at some point. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm also gonna be careless and I'm also gonna say mean things. So. I'm going to extend the same grace to you that you're going to extend to me so we can have a beautiful relationship with each other. You know, one of my best friends, we were roommates in college, like we hated each other, you know, because we were competing each other. There was so much trauma. And, you know, when we could work through that, now we're super close, right? So like it, it, you have to model that to your children and, and homeschooling parents too often is so easy. Isolate, withdraw, don't join a commonwealth, don't join a group. There's so many free resources online. You literally could do all of your education and your kids could be educated. But then it's like, you're literally just 
doing them such a huge disfavor because when they get out to the real world, they're like, what is this thing called people and relationships? <laughs> yeah, no, I know one of the things that I love about the projects that Lemmy has is Quest and in Quest 3, how they study worldviews, they write a personal manifesto. And I mean, my four older boys, my, my youngest was like, oh, do I really want to do this? And my four older boys were like, you cannot graduate high school until you have this done because it was so impactful on their lives, you know, going out as, you know, adults, you know, they knew what they believed. They had written that down and thought about it and looked at whatever, you know, other worldviews and, you know, figured out what their worldview was. And as adults, I mean, my oldest is going to be, he's going to be 30 in a couple months. And uh, he's rewritten his personal manifesto several times and just updated it because as he learns more about the world, he knows more and he has different opinions on it. And I mean, I just think that that is just so powerful. And, and it, by understanding what other people think, they're able to go out into the world and communicate with other people more effectively. So, yeah, I totally agree. We have to, we have to figure out, we have to model that for our kids. Um, older, oldest son also, I know he, he had an opportunity when he was in college, he had one professor who said, you know, communities are dead. They're just not out there, not even a church community. He's, it's just not there. And he stood up to his professor and said, you're wrong. I saw a community. I was part of a community. I still am part of that community. They send me care packages on a regular basis. And, but he saw me help build that community. And he told his class, he said, you know, when I have a family, if I can't find a community for them, I'm going to build one because I know how it impacted my life. And I'm just so grateful that he, he took, first of all, he told me about it. I'll be sure and remind him about it when, once he has kids, but it is so powerful, that sense of community. It really makes our kids stronger and that they understand if you are modeling that, you're working together to, for the common good, that common wealth is why we keep using that word, that commonwealth as a community. Um, it just really makes a difference. But as we get closer to wrapping this up, I really want to go back to this idea of crisis and talk about one of the projects that we have is Hero Project. And that's when we're actually talking to people uh, that went through the last crisis. And there are not very many people around anymore. But I know that you've talked to your grandparents. Yeah, I would love to, to, to tell the story. So my grandmother, she's the middle of three children. And she was born in 1927. So she was born right before the crash, right? So my great-grandparents were raising their children in the Depression, in the Depression. They had babies in the Depression, right? So they were parenting through the crisis. And I asked my grandmother, what was it like growing up in the Great Depression? Like, do you remember being hungry? Do you remember not having food? Like, do you remember these things? And she's like, oh no, we had tons of food. We, she's like, the thing I only remember is that 
we were close to train tracks and so we'd have a lot of vagrants vagrants men looking for jobs come through and we would always feed them I do remember we fed anyone that came to our door and I was like well how come you had a lot of food like was your dad like wealthy no he owned his own business and worked in the in the shipping industry but she said when my when my parents first got married my father said he wanted his sons to know how to work hard and so they bought a place that had three acres and they got like a thousand chickens <laughs> and they put the thousand chickens on these three acres and my grandma, she's like from a very, very young girl, was in charge of collecting the eggs and taking care of the chickens and doing all the chicken work. And so were her brothers. And and so she said during the Depression, when money was tight, we could just trade chicken eggs for milk. But my, my grandfather planned out that having chickens because he wanted to be recession proof. He planned it out because he wanted us to work hard. And he knew that he wasn't raising his kids on a farm. He needed to create an environment where they would have responsibilities and they could work hard. So my grandfather, my great grandfather was just he a very wise parent uh, looking back. But it, I had a very unique opportunity. And I think looking back on it, I think I was so blessed. I, I think this is very rare. And a lot of it has to do with just the, the caliber of my parents. But when my mom was pregnant with her fourth child, my great grandfather was in a home and he, he was nearing the end of his life. I think he was like 94, 95. And we could tell that he was dying and, and nobody wanted him to die in a home. But my grandma, his daughter, decided that she was going to serve a mission for the church. And so she, for our church, so she was in Ireland. <laughs> and so there was no one that had space and time to take care of my grandfather, except for my mother, who was seven months pregnant <laughs> and had three little kids. And so my mother and father graciously opened up their home and to my great grandfather to live with us. I was seven at the time, or six turning seven at the time. And I remember them sitting down and telling us that grandpa was going to come to live with us and that we needed to be really like respectful of him because he's really old and he has limitations, things like that. But he came to live with us was, was probably the best three months of my childhood. And I remember it so well because he would, he was completely bald. He had no hair at all. And he would take rubber bands, <laughs> like, and he'd put them on his head and then they'd like shoot up like rockets. And he'd sit in the center of a room <laughs> and he'd with a pile of rubber bands and he'd shoot them off his head. And we would like, run around find all the rubber bands and then we'd come back and stick them on his bald head and they'd fly up. And then he would get this Afghan, I think that his wife had knitted for him and she had already passed away. And he would play peekaboo with us. And but he could totally see us through the holes in the Afghan. And he would play like the monster with us. He'd like get under it and then like come out and scare us. And and we could see him through the Afghan. So it was like, it was just so funny. Like, but my favorite thing that he would do was before he got like near the, about probably the last six weeks of his life, up until that point, he was very mobile and very fit um, for his age. And so he, every morning he would uh, go for a walk and he would get on his um, sweater that looked just like uh, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> So I kind of felt like I lived with Mr. Rogers, <laughs> a way older version, but he had a Mr. Rogers sweater and he would put it on and he had a fedora and he put that on and he'd grab his cane and his fedora and my mom would let me go on a walk with him. Maybe looking back, maybe my mom was like checking on him by sending me so she didn't have to go on a walk with, you know, like 
super early in the morning and she's like throwing up right you're pregnant so I would get to go on a walk with my great-grandfather like every morning that the weather was good and he would sing songs to me like the whole time we were walking and I don't remember a lot of these songs um but I do remember there was one about pie in the sky and like I just remember that and so one day I was listening to Frank Sinatra and he sang the song once there was a little old ant thought he no thought he what's make a rubber tree plant everyone knows an ant can't oh move move a rubber tree plant but he's got high hopes he's got high hopes he's got high in the sky apple pie hope so if you're feeling down and blue don't know what to do just remember that and whoops there goes another rubber tree plant and the song basically goes on to talk about how little things can have a huge impact but it's an amazing song that just brings so much joy to me today as an adult but every day after our walk we get over i'd help him go down the stairs and into his room and on his bedstand, right next to his bed, was a picture of a young boy dressed in navy blues, navy dress, dress navy, the white hat and the white collar. And every day after I walk, he would take me downstairs and I'd help him get his shoes off or put his slippers on. And he'd say, that's my son. I lost him in the Great War. And I'm going to see him soon. And I'm, I'm a six-year-old kid, right? Like, I have no frame of reference of what the Great War is or what it is to have a son or what it is to lose a child. I, I have no, no, no understanding, right? And it was so impactful for me though because here's a man who his children were born in the great depression and world war ii took his son from him and at 96 years old he had figured out how to get through crisis in a way that could make his heart so pure and joyful that he could make a six-year-old's great-granddaughter's life so full he lived 50 years without his son longer than his son did and and he suffered so much in life but he figured out how to get through crisis that when the change was so painful that he chose the higher road through that change so that at 94 years old, he could fill my life with so much light and joy. And I share that story because I think we need perspective when we go through crisis or when we're in crisis. My grandfather didn't know that when he signed his son's papers to get into, to volunteer to join the army at 17, because he wanted to be a pilot so bad, he didn't want to get drafted at 18. So my grandfather signed the paper that let him join at 17. 
there was no way of knowing that my grandfather was signing his sons to die. And I think that any other man could have lived his whole life with guilt and bitterness and become hard and mean. But somehow he had figured out how to allow that crisis to refine him and to make him a great man. And I never saw any of that, that hardness or that bitterness or that, or those things that crisis can really, you know, <laughs> bring out of us. And I only saw the, the love and the forgiveness and the hope. And, and I think that's why that song was so powerful to me. And, and I think that's why he sang it to me. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking near the end of his life. I'm going to die and I'm going to spend all this time with a six-year-old who might not even remember me. <laughs> but you know, I think, I want to think that he wanted to help me remember and he wanted to teach me because I think, I think he knew that life was that life was going to come full of challenge. I mean, who knew what challenges I was going to face? But as my great grandfather, he wanted to make sure that I knew that you can do, you can get through hard things that are just soul destroying, and come out on the other way and be the type of person that is a light in the world. And so I think crises are scary. And it's okay to be scared, you know, that we're in a crisis now and whatever you are facing. But I think it's also important to take a perspective and like in 50 years from now, you're not going to be in a crisis. So what kind of great grandparent do you want to be to your little one? And what kind of choices are you going to make so that you can be a great grandparent? Yeah, seeing that larger picture i mean thank you so much first of all for sharing that and what a wonderful man that he could inspire you i mean now decades later to share that and and his impact on you has now been shared with everyone who listens to this because i mean i know i know it was emotional for you but i you know my eyes are tearing up too <laughs> But he was thinking, especially from his age, he was able to see the bigger picture. He was able to see that by sharing a song about an ant and a rubber tree plant, he would, you know, put that on your soul that you could do hard things and that you should do hard things. And I think that's timeless, whether we're in a crisis or not. I know the Thomas Jefferson education book was was written basically to help this generation through the crisis, but there's always crises. This is just a bigger one <laughs> that we're all having to go through, but we always, this leadership education, the principles of this educational philosophy and the methodology is impactful in every life. And your grandfather, your great-grandfather was sharing that with you, that you need to work hard and never give up. Always have that growth mindset and always go after that rubber tree plant. Because if you don't try, you never know, you know, and oops, there goes another one. I know 
I have a plaque somewhere that says, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. You have to teach that to your kids. Don't turn away when you're afraid. You have to keep going. And that's where the true growth happens. And that back to that crisis, you know, that is when that impactful change, whether it's in an individual life or in a nation or in the world. And when you're afraid, when you're, when there's big changes going on, instead turn that into a different viewpoint that crisis is an opportunity for growth. And that change doesn't have to be scary. It is just that opportunity. And I'm just, I'm excited. I'm excited because there's a lot of changes that need to be made. Yeah. I, after I read the fourth turning is here, I was so excited for the crisis. Like, and it's, it's been so liberating for me to like going into knowing this year and like everything that's happening in the world to know, like it's, it's going to be okay because it's always been okay. We we've gotten through it. We've been stronger. We've made better things. And, and, you know, the things that came after world war II were so awesome. And so what ends up coming our way, whatever it may be, whatever fear mongers are telling us it's going to be, we're going to get through it. It's going to be really hard, but we get to decide how we get through it. And, and, and honestly, I really do believe there's so much literature out there that dictates like individual people's choices in how they fought the war mattered, you know, and, and how they got through the last crisis, those mattered. They really did. And so like, get yourself strong enough so that you can make those choices that matter, you know, and figure yeah. out what, what those matter. And I think in closing though, it's like, it's, it's also important that not only do we have hope, but we share that hope and with others because too many people are just like, Oh, it sucks to be an American. It's the world sucks. Like this is all over. I'm like, no, this is life is so beautiful. And it's so awesome. We get to go through this. And in 50 years, we can talk about how we did it, <laughs> how we yeah. survived how we chose differently and how we adapted and how we became better. So, yeah. Well, I know there's all kinds of stories about people who left the country. Actually, I know of a family member who left the country when Trump was elected and they went to another country and within a year they were back and it's like, oh, it wasn't quite so bad as we thought because yeah, there's problems everywhere. There's problems everywhere. And if you decide to only see the problems and not, first of all, not try and, and change them, but also just focus on those. That's really your issue. Instead, see all of the amazing things that are happening and make more amazing things happen and help your kids do the same. That's what yeah. I, I feel that that's what being a leader is. That's what leadership education promotes. That's what, you know, at here at Lemmy Leadership Education Mentoring Institute, we are training mentors and that's what we're hoping for you as well, for everybody out there. Yeah. I think that's a great place to, to end and um, to challenge everyone to change your perspective on what the American crisis is and how to get through it. Yeah. This has been great, Tati. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Just as in every Lemmy training, we hope you walk away uplifted and inspired, but also empowered to be a better mentor for your family and your community. Please be sure to subscribe and share. 
We also want to express our gratitude to all the Lemmy mentors, past and present. You got this. You can do hard things.